Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to drboystv.com, the home for intelligent black people. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. I want to say what's up to everybody. Uh, if you're listening to this live, it is Saturday night, uh, and uh, we are hanging out and trying to be smarter every single day. Our goal on this platform is to make you richer, smarter, and happier. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, and I want to say hi to Lisa Parker, and I see Joel Bennett Benetti in here. How you doing? What's up to everybody on Instagram? Uh, let's jump into it. All right. So affirmative action uh, has been a big topic this week. I, I did a post about affirmative action. I did a whole uh, episode of DrBoysTV.com earlier on affirmative action. <laughs> and the title was simple. Affirmative action is officially dead. Uh, a lot of us grew up with affirmative action. We saw it. Uh, many of us benefited from affirmative action. In fact, uh, how many of you, uh, give me a yes in the chat if you have benefited from affirmative action at some point. Uh, Carol Johnson, Vic FM, Yoshika, have, have any of y'all benefited from affirmative action? I see Chris Wavy out of New York, Salam Thompson out of LA, DDS. Uh, let's see, uh, Siku says, I hope you would discuss this. Yeah, I did do a, a prolonged discussion on drboystv.com a few days ago. Uh, Phil Kenny says he's never benefited from affirmative action. Okay, great. Well, you know what? Um, well, you know what? Whether, whether you benefited from, uh, from it or not, those days are over. Affirmative action is dead. And uh, and I got a few thoughts I want to share with you guys in terms of the fact that the fallout has been pretty, pretty huge, pretty huge. And um, uh, the Supreme Court uh, just overruled it. And uh, they pretty much overruled it mainly for university admissions, but it's kind of overruled for almost everything for the most part. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you some um some information, I'll break it down for you, but then I'm also going to give you some hope at the end in and strategies in terms of how to deal with uh, a lot of this. Now, Dr. Getting says she's a Dartmouth grad due to affirmative action. Good for you. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm a product of affirmative action. Uh, when I got my job on the faculty at Syracuse University, they didn't hire black people in the business school at all, anywhere. I was the first, um, well, actually, they hired another black man before me in the finance department, like 20 or 30 years before I arrived. And I think they treated him like crap, too. And so. Uh, so, yes, I, that's my affirmative action experience. I also got my first scholarship at the University of Kentucky uh, through affirmative action. It was a minority scholarship. And uh, I'm not a minority. Ain't nothing minor about me. Ain't nothing minor about you. Ain't nothing minor about black people. But at that time, they called them minorities. And so uh, anyway, uh, one of the things about this affirmative action thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, I was trying to think about who's really hurt the most when it comes to the end of affirmative action. Now, I know that black people, we, we fight hard for it. Uh, black women, I think, uh, have a lot to be a little bit upset about this week because uh, black women actually showed up and really supported the Democratic Party more than anybody else. I think 93 percent of all black women voted for the Democrats. But uh, in the same week that affirmative action was lost, which a lot of black women have benefited from affirmative action, there's also uh, the loss of the whole student loan uh, forgiveness uh, thing, which uh, black women have the highest student loans of any ethnic group out here. But they're also the most highly educated. Right. So that kind of makes sense. That's what it is. Right. Um, and um, and so you, you have these interesting dynamics kind of happening with affirmative action. One of which is this. How many of you knew that the great, how many, let me, I want you, I'm going to ask you on the chat, make a guess here. And everybody that's watching on Spotify, just guess in your head. By the way, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify. Just look up my name, Boyce Watkins. Uh, who do you think are the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action? Uh, who are the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action? I got a USA Today article 
uh, uh, that I want to show you that will show you who the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action are. Would you say that it's white people, uh, black people, gay people, Native Americans, foreigners? Uh, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, who benefits the most? Let me give you a hint. It starts with WW. And I ain't talking about the World Wide Web. I'm talking about the worldwide white women, WWW, worldwide white women. That's four W's actually. So, or yeah, you know what I mean. Anyway, so here's the article right here, right? So it's on USA Today. And it says that white women benefit the most from affirmative action. And the crazy part is that they actually oppose it. So they were literally asking if white women are the greatest beneficiaries, why are they the ones who hate it the most? So uh, here's what the article says. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. And uh, kind of tell you about it. It says uh, people often associate affirmative action to, with efforts to end discrimination for people of color. But scholars say that the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action policies are white women from college campuses to the American workplace. White women today are more educated and make up a bigger slice of the workforce as a result of decades of affirmative action policies, scholars say. White women have also made inroads into corporate leadership that people of color and women have not. Women of color have not. The Supreme Court on Thursday struck down affirmative action admission policies used by Harvard College and the University of North Carolina to build diversity on their campuses. Legal observers say that the decision will have huge, huge consequences for higher education and could have significant ripple effects for corporate diversity programs. So what is affirmative action? Affirmative action refers to efforts to curb discrimination in education, employment, and government contracting. Let's keep that in mind. Education, employment, and government contracting. Affirmative action was first used in 1935 in the Wagner Act, a federal law that gave workers the right to join and start unions. John F. Kennedy was first president to use the term uh, to mean advancing racial equality. The term was originally meant to convey that the government should act affirmatively to end race and gender discrimination. But critics have equated affirmative action with racial quotas and preferences that they say give unfair advantages to people of color and discriminate against white people. So you're discriminating against white people. White people are being discriminated against. Because they, they, they're taking her jabs. They're taking her jabs. Yeah, so that's kind of what it is, right? So you've heard Dr. Claude Anderson. You guys know in the Black Business School, every Wednesday night, we do Poweronomics training, which I hope that uh, everyone will show up for. Uh, just go to blackkeystogreatness.com, blackkeystogreatness.com. You'll get free access to my life class and free access to our Poweronomics training where we're reading Dr. Anderson's books. And you'll know we did a whole section on the history of affirmative action and how uh, the very first affirmative action policies were designed pretty much for white people uh, that where they got benefits that you did not get. They got opportunities you did not get. They were given land that you did not get. They were given 40 acres and a mule that you did not get. And, uh, and black people really have never really benefited from affirmative action. And in fact, it seems to be, give me a yes if you know what I'm talking about. It seems to be that every time we get a little something, something, other people start sort of crawling and creeping into our space. Uh, you start to have people that dive in and say, oh, we're just like the black people, so we should get what they what they get, right? I'm an immigrant, and being an immigrant is hard. It's just like being black. I should get what black people get. Uh, I'm gay. Being gay is so hard. Yes, it is hard to be gay. I, I get it. You know, I, I ain't nothing against you being gay, but but you you trying to you trying to tell me that being gay is the same as being black. So now they call people who um, don't get on the LGBT train. They call them bigots. Well, there used to be a time when the term bigot was in reference to somebody who was racist. Now it's in reference to anybody who doesn't uh, think that a man can just turn himself into a woman or whatever. Right. Anything that you say that's against their sort of agenda, 
makes you quote unquote a bigot. I don't buy into that nonsense. I'm gonna just tell you like right now, if you if you're looking to intimidate me with your stupid labels, you can just go and shove it up your butt. But then again, for some of y'all, you might actually enjoy that. And if that's the case, then I'm happy for you too. So anyway, I let me I'm being crass today. Let me just stop being a jerk. It's Saturday night. That's why I'm talking like this. Just I, I know I ain't like this on a Tuesday, I promise you. Uh but anyway. Uh, so so white women have been the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action anyway. So affirmative action policies were bastardized very early. Uh, and, and what they tend to do is that anything that's given to black people, they tend to water it down and try to make it available for anybody who's not a white man. And I want to warn you, because this is what's going to happen when you start having the reparations conversation. When the reparations conversation starts to heat up, we've been fighting for this damn conversation for well over for many decades. You know, I've been fighting for it personally for about 15 years, but there's been people uh, that have been fighting for it even longer than that. And I'm going to tell you, when that conversation, we've been trying to get the politicians to listen. We've been trying to get the celebrities to listen. Now the politicians are starting to talk about reparations. And I need you all to understand, we got to hold the line. You have to hold the line and not let them water down the conversation. Reparations is about descendants of slaves. I get it if you came from Mexico and it sucked in Mexico. My heart goes out to you. I get it if you've had the trauma and the tragedy of being gay your entire life. That's really hard. I, I don't disagree with you. I get it if, if it being a white woman can be difficult sometimes because white men, some of the white men can be bastards. Not all of them, but some of them have mistreated you. I get it. I get it. But one thing I got to tell you at the end of the day is that you ain't black. You're not black. And, 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 and the reality is that we have a special place in the line and we've been waiting 400 years for our spot. And I'm not waiting no more. So don't get in the line next to me. You get in the line behind me. All right. So uh, so keep those conversations uh, direct and clear. Don't get into these conversations where people start trying to, in the name of, quote unquote, diversity, start watering down your birthright. I think that's highly inappropriate to do. Now, do me a favor. Please hit that thumbs up button. Thumbs up, share, subscribe. You're watching DrBoyceTV.com, the home for intelligent black people. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. I have a new book out on Amazon. It's a bestseller. It's called The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power. And also, uh, you can, I'm going to be in Seattle, July 8th. I'm going to do a four-hour black wealth training based on that book. Uh, it's very powerful. It will change your life. I guarantee. I know it because my doctorate's in this stuff, so I know I know what to what to lay out there for you. And so, uh, feel free to join us in Seattle. You can go to boycewalkins.com and get that information. Also, boycewalkins.com. There's a training called How to Make Money Without Working. Uh, so feel free to go take a look at that. All right. So let's jump back in. We're talking about affirmative action now. Uh, one guy that I really just respect immensely is uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner. You, you, you know him as Theo Huxtable, right, from uh, the Cosby show, but he's he's more than Theo Huxtable. He's a great black man, and he's a smart black man, and he and I talk periodically, and I just respect him uh, to the roof. Uh, and uh, what I respect the most about Malcolm Jamal Warner is that even when we have disagreed, uh, he didn't just sort of turn and say, oh, you a hater, or what's wrong with you? I can't stand you no more. He, he messaged me, and he said, hey, Dr. Watkins, I'd like to understand what you meant when you said this. And I explained it. He said, oh, OK, got it. OK, yeah, I, I get I get where you're coming from. I like people like that, you know, but then again, actors tend to be pretty smart. You, we think actors are dumb, but actually really good actors. Uh, they have to memorize lines and stuff and they're not usually stupid people. But anyway, he shared something that I wanted to share with you all. And he shared this graphic of the fallout from affirmative action, or he claims that it's, it's the fallout that is coming from what's been going on with affirmative action lately. And he shows um, these Hollywood uh, executives who basically are responsible for diversity and inclusion at different Hollywood studios, all of whom were 
removed from their positions or left their positions within one day of the Supreme Court decision. Literally, Disney's chief diversity officer, LaTondra Newton, she's gone. Warner Brothers Discovery laid off diversity executive Karen Horn. Netflix's first head of inclusion, Verna Myers, steps down. She, I guess, left. Um, and the Film Academy's executive VP of Impact and Inclusion, Janelle English, has exited. Now, according to Malcolm and according to uh, my friend Tierra K.J. Williams, a.k.a. Miss Black Hollywood, uh, they both feel that this is connected to the affirmative action decision, which I don't doubt that that could be the case. Um, I don't doubt that the fallout would be immediately. One of the things that I'm thinking about is I bet you companies are now uh, concerned about liability. They're worried about being sued in the event that they um, that they end up promoting diversity when promoting diversity has become uh, pretty much illegal. When the Supreme Court has ruled against promoting diversity and uh, and and you're, you're still promoting that, there are going to be employees who are going to come up and say, I didn't get my job because you gave it to the black guy. Or I didn't get my job because you gave it to that woman over there. I didn't get this job because you gave it to whoever, right? So, so I'm I'm guessing the companies are are just trying to figure out, you know, are we going to be sued? Uh, and they're going to be sued. They're going to be a lot of lawsuits. Uh, I, in fact, I remember seeing a lawsuit from a white professor who was at an HBCU, and he sued for racial discrimination. And so, so, so this is going to change the landscape. This is there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can change. The only thing you can do is adjust. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into a solution. I'm going to transition slowly into solution mode so we can talk about how we can respond to this and, and take this to the next level. Uh, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. I'm going to pull up another article from The Hill that I really that really concern me. And I really need you all to kind of pay attention on this topic because it's just it's just big. And also, by the way, uh, some of you like to come around for stock tips and investing information or stocks that I like. Uh, if you'd like to get some stocks, um, some good investments email, or texted to you, just text the word stock to 31996. Text the stock, not with an S, just stock, uh, S-T-O-C-K, to 31996. And every week I'll send you uh, a stock selection I like, and also you'll instantly get a list of AI stocks that I really love because I want you guys to make money. I want you to be successful. So I'm going to show you what I'm invested in. So just text the word stock to 31996. All right, so so let me show you this article, and I'm going to tell you why the, I'm pulling this up. There's a big question that must be asked by black people. Black folks got to ask us, ourselves this, this question. How are, What are we going to do in a world where there isn't any form of, you know, race-based preference anymore? You know, are, are black children prepared for this future where, you know, they're not going to care that you're black no more? This is a different world. I, I remember when I was a little kid, I got gr drilled. I don't know if anybody else's mama drilled them on this, but I, I got drilled on this fact that back when, you know, when I grew I grew up in a job seeking culture, I didn't know, know nothing about entrepreneurship and all that. We didn't talk about that. So I was drilled on the fact that the way you can get like scholarships is if you tell like really traumatic black stories. Remember I told you how black people end up competing in the trauma Olympics. And so, so they were, so my, I remember being told like, okay, when you write your essay about being black, Talk about something terrible that happened to you because you were black and something terrible that you overcame so that they'll they'll give you the scholarship because you're, you're black. And, uh, and I remember learning that. Well, you know, now they don't care. Now they just kind of say whatever. You know, now that doesn't matter anymore. And so uh, the question becomes, are black children ready 
for this world? And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say the answer is absolutely not. And let me show you some data that supports this, this idea. Uh, they said, uh, this is on the Hill. They said, many of America's black youths cannot read or do math. And that imperils us all. There's something deeply troubling happening in this country. I thought I had a grasp on it, but I was gravely off base. I hosted the Republican candidate for Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears on my TV show, Your Voice, Your Future. I had planned to ask her and the other guests questions on issues ranging from the November election to inflation to the current presidential administration. However, Mrs. Sears' first response, the entire course of the show changed. In my next question, I asked her what is wrong in Virginia and how it can be fixed. Listen to this. Pay attention now. Her response startled me. She told me that 84% of black students in the eighth grade lack the ability to do math. 84%. And 85% are functionally illiterate. 84, 85% of your kids, this is y'all's kids, y'all us, that's our kids cannot read or write or do math at grade level. I need you to process that for a moment. I mean, I, I bet if they took a, a poll and said, how many, what's the percentage of black children that know how to rap? I bet, I bet it would be up there around 85%. I bet if they said, oh, what's the percentage of black boys that can play basketball? Oh, that'd be about you know, 84, 85%, maybe 92%. What if they said, you know, what are the what's the percentage of black girls that, that know who Cardi B is? That's about 98%. What's the percentage of little black girls that can twerk when their mama ain't looking? Oh, that's very high too, probably 80, 90%. So, so the kids are learning. Uh, or if they say, what percentage of children know what it means to state your pronouns it, it, just in case you might be gay or transgender, oh, I bet you that ratio is pretty high. I think that as black people, I really think that we need to stop for a minute and hold our breath and realize that we're in a state of absolute complete emergency. I mean, I know that we're used to pretending like these things aren't happening or we're used to waiting for white people to solve these problems. Because remember, these are the people that we're sending our children to. So so it does so don't get me wrong we're we're not preparing them right in 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 the early stages a lot of parents don't even know uh to get their kids into uh preschool programs that they don't know how much brain development occurs before the age of 5 and then when you tell some parents they still don't care right they just aren't hearing that right so 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 but but so, so this is like a partnership this is what i call a partnership of oppression p o o poo poo Damn, that's a good acronym. I just made that up. A partnership of oppression. So this is how your kids end up in the poo-poo. The partnership of oppression. I'm, I need to write that down. So the partnership of oppression is where we're not doing a good job preparing our kids. And then they're doing an even worse job of educating our kids when they have them in school all day. Most American children spend more time at school than they spend with their parents. They get educated more at school than they do at home. And then what happens is, here's what happens whenever you look around and you say, why is it that there are 55 schools in the Chicago public school system that don't have one single black child that can read, write, or do math at grade level? First thing that happens is people decide, okay, who do we blame? 
do we blame the parents or do we blame the teachers? And I say it's everybody's fault. It takes a village to destroy a child. It takes a concerted effort to make children that stupid. It ta- I mean, it takes all of us to ensure that our children have no future at all, no hope whatsoever. And then when we dump those poor little kids out into the street at the age of 18 with no skill, nothing uh, that will help them to survive, and then they turn into thugs and killers and riding down stripper poles and, and prison inmates, we then wonder what happened. Well, I'm going to say this. It always starts at home. It always starts at home. You know, parents, we, we know this. It starts at home. And, and, and really, not only does it start at home, but when it does start at home, I think we got to really look at why we have so many broken families in our community, why we think that's okay, too. What's going on? What happened? Black men, why don't you want to be in the house with your black child or somebody's damn child so you can help with solve this problem? Black woman, why are you so quick to tell your baby daddy to go to bounce out just because you mad because he hollered at another chick and you without your permission? I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying that your children are still going to suffer, whether he was a bastard or not. Your children's going to suffer. What's going on? If it, if it starts at home, that means something's broken at home. Well, the first thing that's broken at home is your damn family. It is very rare. It is almost impossible for a family with two parents with their head on straight who are both working to ensure that their child is prepared for school. It is very rare that that child does not go to school and do well because that child is the child that gets delivered to the public school and they are prepared to learn that that is the child who does well. That's the one who gets through the system and goes to college and does whatever he's going to do. So, so the children that are falling through the cracks are part of the poo poo, the, the, uh, the partnership of oppression. So the uh, parents start the oppression. The daddy starts the oppression because he's not around. And then the mama starts the oppression because she don't think the baby needs a daddy, but she got to work three jobs now. Now the baby ain't getting no guidance and the baby's not ready for school. So, but the baby's like in the car with the mama listening to Cardi B lyrics and can recite like the most ratchet hip hop known to man. But, but, you know, so shows up at school, cussing out the teacher, acting a damn fool, behavior problems through the ass. And then even worse is when you have those scenarios where the mama don't want to believe her baby's ever wrong. Right. And will fight the teacher who's trying to discipline the child. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Wait, y'all remember the day? Seriously, I'm I'm going to be a little nostalgic. I'm going to show my age. Y'all remember the day when the teacher could call your parents? And shut you down quickly. Like the parents would partner with the teacher to manage the child's behavior. If you called, if you call the uh the, the parent, they would say, Oh, get your ass in here. What the you better sit your ass down and class. You remember that? Y'all remember those days? But that doesn't happen anymore. Now this poor teacher's gotta call the parent, and the parent is just as crazy as a damn kid. And then the parent knows where the kid's getting this behavior from because children feed off of the cues from their parents. If my mama don't respect my teacher, then why in the hell should I? I'm not going to get punished for for slapping my teacher or cussing her out. I'm going to get a new PlayStation. That's what's happened. Your values have been absolutely killed. Your culture has been destroyed. And it ain't, I'm not even going to say your culture, actually. That's a, that's a, I misspoke there. It's not your culture. It's their culture. Because B1 intelligent black people are not living like this. this. This is not, you know, some of y'all have risen out of that. Some of y'all, most of you have seen it. That's why you can identify with what I'm saying. But I congratulate most of you because most of you have gained enough cultural consciousness to understand just the complete shit show that they've been, that, that, that has been thrust upon you.
So congratulations to most of you who got the kids that are behaved, that are making sure your children are prepared. I have no doubt in my mind that 80, 90 percent of your kids are going to be just fine. So so really, I'm not talking about you and your children. I'm really talking about the community and the village. So let's keep going. Um, so it takes a partnership to keep the kids in the poo poo partnership of oppression. So the parents. So the, so it starts at home, uh, which but there is no home. Daddy's gone. Mama's working all day. Nothing but hip hop lyrics are raising the child. So child comes to school acting a damn fool. You know, it, it, but then the school system part. That's when they jump in. But they're part of the partnership. They're the ones who uh, who won't hire the strong black men as teachers, strong black men will apply for a job. They don't let those strong black men in the school because they don't want the little boys to have any exposure to any sort of positive masculinity other than maybe, maybe they can learn something from rappers and basketball players. But, but men like me or Farrakhan or whatever would never be invited into a public school because they think that we're dangerous. Uh, I, I, I sat down, I went to a school in Syracuse one time when I was on the faculty of Syracuse I was very young at the time. I'd only been on the faculty maybe two or three years. So this is maybe 20 years ago. And I went into the school and uh, in the whole seventh grade, uh, they all every single teacher was a white female. But the whole school was full of like black and brown kids, nothing but black and brown kids. Every single teacher was a white woman. And I these very nice white women sat me down and they said, Dr. Watkins, what do you think about our school? I said. Your school is really depressing. It looks like a mix between a penitentiary and an insane asylum. If I had to come into the school every day, I'd probably want to kill myself. I was still honest. I was as honest then as I am now, which, of course, my mouth gets me in trouble, but I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. And then the, the very nice white lady who really, I think, wanted to do the right thing. I really thought she did. So, so don't think if you're white, don't think I hate white people. I don't. I understand. You're trying to do the right thing. I'm going to help you with that. OK, so she's asking me, she says, in case you haven't noticed, Dr. Watkins, you know, we're all white women. And they're like, <laughs> I said, yeah. And I noticed that in your special ed class where I spoke to the children, almost every single child in that class was a black boy. And you can't control those black boys. But you notice that within 10 minutes, I had those boys like eating out of the palm of my hand. I had those boys responding to me because I was one of those boys. Black boys don't scare me. They're not confusing to me. I understand how they operate. So what you really need is you need somebody that's going to commit to diversity in terms of exposing these children to the kinds of teachers that they actually need instead of white women who are afraid of them and don't understand them. Again, partnership of oppression. So, so when that child shows up and they're not ready to learn, they're not doing what they're supposed to do in school, there is nobody there to invoke the discipline that they're not getting at home. There's not even somebody that the boy can latch on to as a father figure at school because he's surrounded by all these white women or or maybe white men who want to just hit him inside the head with a billy club. And the next thing you know, you know, he just kind of falls to the wayside. You just throw him in special ed or put him in. They got like almost like little jails for like middle school and high school kids. Like I used to be in those, like those like detention rooms and or the special ed room where they just put you in there and you don't learn anything or you're always in the principal's office. I spend time in all those places. I, I, I know what that's like. So so it's a partnership of oppression. And, and really what um, the bigger picture is in general is that you're going to have to, if you want to avoid this nonsense, you're going to have to really take your family back. You're going to have to take your children back. You're going to have to really, really be proactive in terms of how you structure your family. You know, that means when you pick in your, your partners or who you want to have kids with and all that, you got to think about that. Then you got to be proactive about how your child gets educated. 
And I'm going to tell you how to do that in a minute. I'm going to give you some tips on that in one second. So do me a favor, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. Uh, we have a movie coming out this summer. We are making black owned movies. Uh, Rick Mathis is the director of a great film we created called B1 The Movie. We're documenting the B1 movement with uh, tremendous experts from Riza Islam to Nuri Muhammad to uh, all kinds of great people. Julian Gordon, who actually helped black people get a quarter billion dollars worth of real estate. Just all these excellent experts from your community. Vicki Dillard, just really smart people. Uh, so uh, this summer it's going to be released. We're going to do a red carpet in Atlanta. And we're also going to show the film at the All Black National Convention, which takes place in atlanta october 20th the the all black national convention you do not want to miss it it is the best experience of your life anybody in the chat who's been there say something so others will know how great it is it's a great experience and we have experts what we do is we gather a think tank we gather all the best experts from our community who care about our people first that doesn't it doesn't matter if you're a republican or democrat crack gay or straight male or female young or old we gather all these experts from therapists to doctors to attorneys to uh, all kinds of people uh, to basically help us figure out how to solve problems. Uh, I believe that we have the solutions. I believe that we can't sit around waiting for anybody else. And that's what the convention is all about. So uh, if you're interested, just go to allblacknationalconvention.com and we will have a digital pass this year so you can watch it virtually. But you want the energy is just so different when you're there. So you really want to be in the room. Uh, you know, with, 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 with the people that are there. All right. So let me, uh, let me kind of dig into this a little bit. So we're talking about affirmative action and the post affirmative action world where black children are not really prepared to compete. Uh, it, you know, given that statistic that 84% of all black children can't read or do math at grade level, this is a state of absolute complete emergency. If that were true for white children, they would respond as such. Uh, we, for some reason, uh, seem to believe that because we are white supremacists in our souls, we believe that white people are supposed to come along and solve the problem. If suddenly all the white media networks and all the white folks in America suddenly decided to care about black children and their education, then suddenly we would start caring because we would almost feel like we've gotten permission. Well, I'm trying to encourage you to guide your own conversation. We have to start caring without worrying about what they're doing without worrying about what they're saying, without worrying about what they're going to do next, we have to think about what we're going to do next. So what I'm telling you is you better take control of your damn house. You got to take control of your damn kids. You got to take control of the educational process in your family. You have access to all the information you need, all the experts you need. You have me. I'm a college professor. I am on here every single day, constantly teaching black people, constantly teaching. So, so you, we have no excuse to not get what we need. I'm smarter than those white women that are educating your kids. I'm going to go ahead and definitely say that because I know it's true. So why in the hell are we waiting for these people who are clearly unqualified to pull us out of a mess that is going to affect us? So so one of the um, other things I'll throw in there is let's talk about education and, and, and just something very basic. Who are your kids learning about when they go to school every day? I mean, who are their heroes? Um, I want you to process this. So in a pre-affirmative action world, in a affirmative action society, that's, let's say the 1980s and 1990s, when, when being black might mean that you could get put to the front of the line for a corporate job or for a scholarship. In that world, um, there was a lot of time spent on what I call the civil rights superstars. You know, pretty much anybody involved with the civil rights movement was held up as a hero. Malcolm X was seen as a villain. So they didn't talk about Malcolm in school. They should have been talking about Malcolm first. But then when we find out about Malcolm, we start getting excited. And that's the person we identify with even as much, if not more than Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is, is shoved down our throats. 
uh, you know, in our face, up our butts. And, and we basically end up uh, sort of being exposed consistently to these individuals who have taught us that integration is the solution to every single problem we've ever had. And then what happens is you then become a deeper white supremacist because your goal at that point is to integrate as much as possible. You believe that if I can go to a school with white folks, I'm going to be smarter. You believe that if I can work at a company run by white people, I'm going to be richer. You believe if I can go to a university run by white folks, I'm going to just be better off in my, and I'm going, to have, I'm going to be in a better position in society. And then what happens is that they, you're led into these institutions. Uh, then what is created out of that is what they call the angry black middle class. Let me show you. I'm going to show you. Let me show you a little trick. Um, give me a yes if you went to college, but you and, and then you got a job and you felt like you were treated like crap on the job because you were black. Give me a yes if, if you are an educated black person who was entirely pissed off because of racism that you saw on the job. Give me a yes. How many yeses? Come on. Come on. Drop it on me. I already know what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I'm going to see yes, 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 yes. Hell yes. Absolutely. Completely. Yes, absolutely. Right. So what happened is what you are. Well, here's what you are. You are part of what is referred to as the angry black middle class. You're the black people who did everything right. You went to school. You worked hard. You, you did. You, you didn't go to jail. You didn't do anything crazy. And, and then you got to that beautiful job that you were working for your whole life. And then you kind of said, well, something isn't quite right. You know, maybe you're saddled with, with so much student loan debt that you'll never be able to repay it before you did. Maybe you uh, were so stressed out from having to work with people who hate you that it, it affected your mental and physical health. I, I don't know. But but most of us have felt this way. So this angry black middle class, in my view, is an artifact of this uh, this um, this uh, integrationist uh, assimilationist indoctrination that we've received our whole entire life. And affirmative action only served to facilitate that. Affirmative action said, hey, yeah, come on in. Yeah, it's, why would you go build your own business? I mean, that's hard. That takes time. That's a lot of labor. When you could just come on and just help me out, and I'll just give you a couple little crumbs and 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 make you feel like you're somebody. That's that's what it was. That's what it was. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want I want to ask you this. So so think about this, right? So we know that we know the shortcomings of the affirmative action world, right? We know the shortcomings of getting the corporate job and going to the big white university and all that. I remember at USC. I remember USC had black students that were protesting because of how poorly they were treated at USC. And then as I got older, my thought was like, well, why in the hell would you go to a school that treats you like shit and they're going to charge you $70,000 a year so they can crap on you? I don't understand that. Oh, but black people, we do. Why? Well, because we have the tradition of watching the civil rights superstars sitting at a lunch counter, getting the shit beat out of them. Also, they can spend their last two dollars on a milkshake and give the white man their money so he can spit in your milkshake and call you the N word. But yet somehow, some way you felt like that was some sort of success. Who told you that was success? All the while, there's a black man down the street or a black woman down the street who loves you, who has better milkshakes at a lower price, who's going out of business, going out of business because you're so eager to go and sit next to white people and have your milkshake next to the white man with boogers in it because he done, he done, he done, he done, he done snotted in your, in your milkshake and you only know it and, and you paid them extra. You paid them double for that. I need you to accept the idea that perhaps we were cursed with a mental illness. That's what I'm getting at. I think that we were cursed with a mental illness because there's nobody else that would go and get beat half to death 
just for the opportunity to give money to the people who hate them the most and are never going to give it back. And then, and at the same time, simultaneously will ignore the people who love them. That's like a person who's in, that's like a low self-esteem person in an abusive relationship. You, you dating Ike Turner and he's punching you in your face and treating you like crap. And you love him so much <clears throat> that you will literally harm the people that care about you just so you can make sure you cover up for Ike. That's Stockholm syndrome. There's a whole movie about that. What's love got to do with it? So what I'm saying is I want a different model. I want to move to a different paradigm. I want to see this setback as an opportunity for us to, to do a go back, to do a sort of a, a to, to, to go back in time and to say, you know, how did our ancestors, the ones who were thriving, because they had some thriving black people back in the day. You know, how did they do it? How did they do it without having affirmative action programs that gave them good jobs? How did uh, A.G. Gaston end up sitting on tens of millions of dollars when nobody would give him an affirmative action job? Uh, you know, how did um, uh, uh, O.W. Gurley, the creator of Black Wall Street, why in the hell would he walk away from all those good jobs white folks were, were going to give him and go create Black Wall Street, one of the greatest economic achievements of all time? How did Marcus Garvey acquire so much power and so much wealth that they were conspiring to put him in prison because he, he had become so powerful? How did that happen? And that's just that's just three examples. There's probably like 10,000 others out there, but you never learned about them because they spent so much time in school teaching you about Martin Luther King every single year. Martin Luther King was a great man. I'm not saying that he was not. But even Martin admitted toward the end of his life, and he was a very young man when he died, toward the end of his life, he admitted that he should have been talking more about the economics, and he also admitted that he was integrating black people into a burning house. And uh, and does anybody remember how old Martin Luther King was when he died? I want to say he wasn't even 40 yet. Let me see. I should know this. He was 39 years old, 39 years old. So let me just put that into context for you. I'm going I'm I'm to help you understand who you're listening to. And, and how this compares to what Martin taught us at that time. Martin was a brilliant man. But here's the difference between what I'm saying to you and what Dr. King would have said to you up until they unalived him, up until they sent him to his grave. Dr. King was 39 when he died. I'm 52. So he had a PhD, I had a PhD. When I was 39, my ideas were very different than what they were at 52. And, and then you have even people like Dr. George C. Frazier, who's 77 years old. You know, Dr. Claude Anderson is 89 years old. So you've got people in the community who have a type of wisdom that Dr. King was never able to develop in his very short life. So his ideas were wonderful and beautiful, but they were still evolving. And he was learning. He was getting data to tell him if his, if his experiment was actually working or not. And, and I believe that toward the end of his life, he was finding out that an integrationist, uh, assimilationist strategy wasn't optimal for black people. You're too special for that. And unfortunately, the hatred and the disdain for you is just so deep that it's very difficult for anybody to see you as adequate partners. That's that's the problem. They always saw you as subordinates. So 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 what I would say to you is when your kids are learning, here's a basic thing you can do, and I, and I encourage you to really all do this. When your kids are learning about the heroes of black history, 
I need you to make sure that they know as much about Marcus Garvey as they know about Martin Luther King. I really encourage you to do that. So you, you can even add Malcolm in there. I, I want them to know as much about A.G. Gaston as they know about, say, Frederick Douglass or or John, uh, what's his face, the, the guy that passed. I can't remember his name anymore. Uh, honestly, I, I, no disrespect to him, but honestly, his, his work didn't uh, didn't excite me. It didn't impress me. I, I appreciated what he tried to do. John, is it John Conyers? Is that right? Uh, the, the past, I don't know if it's Conyers. See, that's how, honestly, it just didn't. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, John Lewis, thank you. And it's no disrespect. I'm not, I'm not here to offend nobody today. I offend people regularly, but I'm not going to do that today uh, or try not to. But uh, he didn't inspire me. No, there, you know, when I saw his life, especially as he got older, I didn't hear a single word that came out of his mouth that made me say, this is really going to elevate black people. Uh, when I, but when I read the story about Marcus Garvey, I said, Oh shit. Woo. That's what I'm talking about. That's some power right there. Uh, when I read the story about AG Gaston who went and his mother worked, uh, his mother actually worked for, she, she washed clothes for a Jewish family. They taught him the secrets to wealth and independent power. And you saw what he did. He just ballooned. He mushroomed. He rose like a mushroom cloud. And he became the financial engine behind the civil rights movement because activism needs money. You need your billionaires, almost like a tug of war, how you have the fat kid pulling uh, on the anchor to pull the to pull the rope back. The, the, the business owners are your anchor on your, uh, you know, in, in the tug of war that you're in. So, so you got to make sure your kids learn about these powerhouses and these giants that were able to independently build black owned businesses and go and really do whatever the hell they want to achieve. I mean, to achieve that level of freedom at a time where freedom was very rare for black people, that should be something we should all be masters on that. Absolute masters. Do I have a book I want to share? I don't have one right now, but I'll find one. I'll definitely find one. Maybe we'll read one in the book club. Make sure you join the book club. Maybe we'll we'll read a book on Garvey or something like that. Um, there's the A.G. Gaston book. I can't remember the name of it right now. But uh, but but we'll that's what we'll do. We'll kind of dig into some of these people during the book club meeting. So by the way, if you have not joined uh, the book clubs uh, on Wednesday nights, uh, you can go to BlackKeysToGreatness.com. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. It's BlackKeysToGreatness.com, and that's actually a life class, a full life class that you can actually have for free in addition to being a member of the book club. So the URL is on the screen. Uh, feel free to join. And uh, also, I would like to, uh, if you will allow me, I want to thank the sponsor for tonight's episode. Uh, this brother with Body Natural Nutrients um, has an extraordinary set of supplements uh, that can help you with bone and joint pain and things like that. And uh, his website is right there. It's bodynaturalnutrients.com slash B1. And, uh, and so uh, thank you very much for uh, supporting Black-owned media. Uh, I promise we'll, we'll make you proud. And uh, so go take a look at their black owned website and, uh, and and let me know if their bone factor advanced bone and joint solution works. And then I'll go try some myself. And if you'd like to sponsor a podcast, just go to drboysfinance.com. That's drboysfinance.com. All right. So uh, so so here here's the premise. Right. Affirmative action is gone. OK. Um, I'm not shaking and rattled and, and just depressed and sad about it. Um, it doesn't make me want to run up and go and, you know, go vote for anybody. Uh, I don't trust the politicians anyway. Um, you know, I, I knew that it was eventually going to go away. The loss of affirmative action, what that does is that reminds you of the difference between 
benefits you create for yourself that are substantive versus things that are temporary. Uh, ownership is much more permanent than a job. You know, uh, if you own a business, you can pass that to your kids. If you own land, you can pass it to your kids. If you own property assets, you can pass that to your kids. But uh, you cannot pass a job to your children. When you are, um, when you get a job, you're basically an economic babysitter. You are managing the assets of someone else. You're donating labor to someone else's empire. And also, you're not going to be able to shape the culture, policy, and decision-making that happens within that institution. That's why you end up being frustrated. That's why you're part of the angry black middle class. That's why you're so mad is because you were lied to. Most companies don't even truly believe in diversity. They just all have a diversity statement because they're, they're legally obligated to have one. They don't really believe in diversity. Uh, they don't. Uh, I've seen many examples of qualified black people that have applied for jobs and did not get those jobs. When I was at Syracuse University, I still remember watching two or three super qualified black women apply for jobs and in that institution and literally jump through every hoop and do the best presentation ever. And then what would happen is they wouldn't hire them and they would never explain why. They would just say, You're, she's not a good fit for the department. And I would say, like, what does that mean? And they would say, well, she's just not a good fit. And, and what that is, to me, what that interprets, the way I interpret that is that's like white people's way of doing what your parents used to do. Remember when your parents used to used to argue with them and you say, well, why can't I go skating today? Or why can't I go to the mall? And they would just say, because I said so, right? They, at that point, that's your mama's way of saying, I don't, I'm tired of arguing with you and I know I got the power. So I'm pulling out the Trump card because I said so. Well, well, that's what white folks do on a regular basis. You know, those who are those in power in general, it's not just a racial thing all the time. The person who runs the institution always has the Trump card. They always have the ability to say, we're just not going to do it because I said so. You might be right, but we're not going to do it because I said so. And so to some extent, you by over committing to this assimilation, affirmative action, the easy route, the easy route, you've basically made white people into your parents. That's what you've done. You made them into your parents. That's why you go you go to that job and you're nervous because they might let you go. Um, you're not getting the pay that you deserve. You're not getting the promotion that, that you rightfully earned. Maybe you get laid off on your day off. It didn't even do nothing wrong. And then when you want to change something and you get seen as a troublemaker, they let you go. And then you say, well, why did you do that? They say, well, because we said so. We're going to do it like this because we said so. And that shows a lack of understanding of the importance of power and ownership. The only time I felt like a free black man was when I owned my own business. I never felt free when I worked for other people. I just, I never did. Now, maybe I could have worked with other black people. In fact, to this day, I, I work with and I work for other black people. I, I, I have some, some projects I do, I'm the boss. Some projects I do, I'm a partner. Some projects I do, I'm not the boss. I'm the hired help. When I go speak uh, in Seattle, which by the way, if you go to boyswalkers.com, you can join us. When I go speak in Seattle, I'm, I'm not the boss. They're hiring me. They said, hey, Doc, we'll pay you money to come out here and do a training. I said, okay, sounds good. And so so in that situation, I'm not, uh, I'm not running anything. But here's the thing. There's a difference between working for people because you want to versus working for people because you have to. And the, and the thing about it is that if they were to ever start to disrespect me in a significant way, I can take my black ass right out the door and not even think twice about it.
if they were to ever get out of line and start mistreating me and start calling me names or or making me feel bad, oh, I got somewhere to go. I ain't got to be here. You know, to keep your little money. I don't, I don't care. Well, why is that? Why is that? I need you to understand why this is. This is a this is a this is an important risk lesson that you have to understand. You take so many risks when you put all of your economic uh, security in the hands of another person or group of people, especially people who don't love you. You just do. So the reason I can walk out the door and not care is because I got other ways to make money. I have other places I could be. I have other places that want me. I have other businesses I'm affiliated with. And this is not impossible to do. You just got to plan for that. You got to build that kind of a life for yourself. And you got to make sure, and I hope you'll do this, you got to make sure that your children are trained on this at an early age. When I told my when I talked to my daughter, my daughter told me that she said, I think I might want to get a job. I know you want you you believe in black people having businesses. And I said, No, I think you, yeah, I think you should own businesses, but that don't mean you have to be an entrepreneur. And I said, I don't care if you work for somebody, but I don't never want you to ever have to work for anybody. I want you to always have options. And a lot of black people don't have options. Why? Well, because they trained you that white folks are the way, the truth, and the light, and that you should bet all your chips. Put all your chips on the table in hopes that white folks will be nice to you. Well, I don't have that much trust. I don't have that much trust for anybody, especially somebody that has planned my demise since before I was born. They didn't even want my black ass to be on the planet. They didn't even want me here. My mother was 16 and poor when she got pregnant with me. So you don't think Planned Parenthood would have gladly taken that little black girl to the clinic? You don't think they would have gladly had her abort that or terminate that pregnancy? Seriously. So they they haven't they've never wanted me to succeed. I don't hate anybody. I, this is not anti-nothing. This is self-defense. The economics of self-defense should be required training for every black child in America, male or female. You should always know how many options you have. Every situation you're in, you should always know, just like police, when they go into a building. I got a security guy that does security for me. He's super smart, so don't never try to run up on me because you might get hurt that day. And he's a former cop, and you know what he does? Every time we go into a building, he immediately observes the situation to figure out where the threats are. Uh, he figures out where all the entrances are, where all the exits are, where all the windows are. Just in case something goes down, just in case we got to get out of the building, just in case we got to lean on a plan B. So I need us to think the same way. When you send your children out into life, make sure they know where the exits are. Make sure they always have a plan B. Don't have them out here like everybody else living paycheck to paycheck, working for somebody who don't even halfway like them anyway. No assets to speak of, no financial security, no, no, no skill sets that they can spin out into another opportunity, no ability to fight to start their own business in case they can't find a job. That's incredibly, incredibly risky. That's crazy. Don't do that. That's my two cents. I think affirm I knew affirmative action was going to come to an end. I always knew that. It was already ending. When they started giving it all to white women, that was pretty much the end of it anyway. You know, the black people are the least fun 
people to diversify your company with. Most companies that have strong diversity policies, they will go hire a white woman. They will go hire a gay person. They will hire a transgender person. They will hire an Indian before they hire your black ass. You're like last on the list. Being black ain't nothing special about being black when you go to that application into that interview. In fact, it's it becomes a liability again because they're sitting there thinking, well, why would I hire an African-American man when I can hire me an Indian woman with with one leg and and and, and who happens to sleep with girls? Like, seriously, that like that. That's what they that's the, the thought process. That's why, for example, my wife's university does not have one single African-American male on the entire faculty anywhere on that campus. So me and my wife can't apply for the same jobs. My wife, she knows, she knows she's a she's a, a, a pretty light-skinned black woman who doesn't look like a threat. They don't understand how that she's really gangster deep down. They don't understand that she'll ride with a black man to the ends of the earth. That's why we're together. But they but but she knows and I know that there's places she can go where I can't go. Seriously, it's it's a little bit almost like American gangster. Like she's a, the, the little light-skinned wife. And I'm Bumpy Johnson. She's the one going to the social events. I'm the I'm the one that's kind of the outcast. I know these things. I accept this. I know that I can't find success in the same places that she can, because the world would never look at me and see an attractive black woman. I don't want them to see an attractive black woman. So what I need you to realize too, especially for your sons, is that the world will pretty much reject him. Your daughters too, to some extent, but black women and black men, different situations. I be, I really believe that because black women, you see that they're getting the jobs, they're getting the student loans and the education and and start and even starting the businesses. And I'm, I'm I applaud all of that, but I really just don't see how a black man and black woman can succeed in the same way nine times out of ten. I'm not saying it's not possible. I've seen it in some situations, but in many cases, even when that black man is doing well inside that institution, it's like literally like one inch away from blowing up one inch away from something popping off that ends up getting him pushed out or blackballed or something like that. So it's, it's, it's like a hair trend, hair trigger kind of thing. You got to be real careful with that. Every black child should know how to start a business. And if you do it and you do it well, and you get with other people who have the same mindset and you're having things like family business meetings to talk about every, every, just so you know, every single week I get together with my family on the zoom and all we do is we talk about how to make money. We talk about what everybody's doing. We, we plan things together. We're connecting emotionally, but we're also connecting financially. We're trying to intertwine our fates. We're trying to eat off each other's talents, eat off each other's success. Because we know that we're all we got. Your family's what you got. And if you ain't got the right family, get another one. That's okay. There's people out here that, that, that will love you like a, like a relative will. Just make sure you show up ready to help. People always want to work with people that add value. So if you are a good person that adds value, as much value as you can, you have no trouble finding people that will love you as much as your cousins will. Go find those people. Get with them. Make plans. Think big. Don't sell yourself short. That's my two cents. I don't have nothing else to say. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Um, this podcast is on Spotify. Uh, so if you look at my name on Spotify, you can find it there if you want to listen. Also, if you want me to send you stocks that I like each week uh, or you want to get a list of AI stocks, just text the word stock to 31996. Text stock to 31996. Uh, I'll be in Seattle July 8th. If you'd like to learn more about that, go to boycewatkins.com. Also on boycewatkins.com, you will find information uh, on a training I created called How to Make Money Without Working. 
Uh, also, my new book is called The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power. Uh, this summer, we have B1, the movie coming out. And also October 20th in Atlanta is the All Black National Convention. So I put all that on my website to make it easy for you. And I appreciate you all letting me share all that with you in case you want to know. That's how we stay independent is we are very industrious in terms of developing things that will help us to achieve our goal as a community. So it all kind of connects at all kinds of fits. Um, the Black Business School is here for you and we are fighting every single day and I ain't going to fight until my casket drops. I'm, I'm going to fight until my casket drops. How about that? Let me say that right. I'm going to keep fighting until my casket drops, until I take my last breath, until I'm no longer on this earth, uh, because I believe that this is an opportunity for us to be great. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm not saying that I don't support affirmative action. I support it all. I really do. But I think that we have the secret sauce where we're going to look back 30 years from now, some of you, and we're going to find out that this was the moment that really brought out the greatness in us. And, and all we got to do is believe in ourselves. So go for it. Go get it. Uh, God bless you. Have a good night, everybody. I'm going to go spend time with my wife. Love you. And I'll see you tomorrow. Take care now. Peace. Here we are, clan, the isms, cataclysm, great. Our people out here struggling, trying to make it in this state. Everybody out here doing it, but we the ones who late. Now, family, we the ones who gotta delegate. Get that money in the power, never be fake. Stick to co-sign for three. What did he say? Uh, create jobs, support our own. Educate the same and buy back your home. Got three degrees, triple ten. Three PhDs, now we on the CNN. DBTV, let's talk about negligence. Ignorance is bliss, but we can turn into intelligence. Believe none of what you hear, half of what you see. Let's break it down here on Dr. Voice TV. Here we are.